Leftovers Season 3, Episode 2, Don't Be Ridiculous, is still over, but we're just getting started. Digging into your feedback this week on the Leftovers Post Show Recaps Podcast. Hello, everybody. I am Josh Wiggler, here joined by the opposite of a perfect stranger, Antonio Mazzaro. Antonio, how are you doing? Does that mean imperfect friend? Imperfect friend. Is that what you're calling me? I think that that's not, you know, inaccurate. I mean, we're all imperfect, but we're definitely friends. We are born sinners, Josh. Yeah, uh, we're definitely friends. I wouldn't say we're... It depends on what the imperfect modifies. It can't be modifying the friend, Josh. We're perfect friends. We're very good friends. Our friendship is pretty rock solid. But as people, as individuals, I believe that we are all imperfect. I agree. Would our friendship, Josh, survive if I strapped you to a teeter-totter and lowered you into the water? Probably not, because I think I would die. So you wouldn't survive that, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, maybe you being the surviving party would be like, oh, I'm sure he forgives me and our friendship is still intact even though he's gone this is for the best (laughs) but wherever you sent me i'm just shaking my fist at you from a distance yeah angrily just saying like how how dare you send me to a world with no pizza indeed indeed a very dark pizza portal you've sent me through exactly the only pizza there is leftovers i'm sure that there are people who are now shaking their fists at us and saying don't be ridiculous start the podcast for real so let's do that let's hop into it a lot to talk about as we're talking about the second episode of the final season of the leftovers here nora durst centric or Nora Kirst centric if you would prefer a Carrie Coon showcase this week which is always great we always have a good time with those so plenty to talk about with what's going on there just a little bit of business up front as always if you have not yet subscribed to our podcast don't be ridiculous you want to do that go to postshowrecaps.com slash leftovers iTunes is the way to subscribe to us through iTunes for any other podcatcher go to postshowrecaps.com slash feed slash leftovers and of course for feedback the way that we are getting your feedback for these feedback shows. Postshowrecaps.com slash feedback is our feedback form. We have a fancy new email address that a lot of you guys use this week, leftovers at postshowrecaps.com. And then there's always the old-fashioned Twitters where Antonio and I lurk. Antonio more so than I these days. I, I'm not even a lurker, yeah. Yeah, you're you're active. I'm lurking. You're active. I'm at Round Howard. He's at AC Mazzara. We're there. We're seeing your questions, and we will bring them into the feedback show as well. Anything that I'm missing before we dive into this? No, we made the top five in TV and film and podcasts on iTunes. So thank you to everyone for your subscriptions and your honest star ratings and reviews on iTunes. Please continue to do that. If you haven't done that, just go to postshowrecaps.com slash leftovers iTunes and subscribe if you haven't, as Josh noted. Uh, And those subscriptions and reviews help us continue to stay on the top of those charts. It gets more eyes and ears in the program, gets more of these great feedback questions sent in, and we have a more robust discussion as a result. So thank you to everybody who has done that already, uh, and thank you in advance for your honest ratings and reviews in that regard. But Josh, I guess if that counts as a do without further of it, let's get into this. Let's get into it, and I I actually kind of would love to get into it by talking about a different podcast, which might be poor form, Um, but have you listened to the Damon Lindelof podcast on The Watch? over at the Ringer Network, Antonio? I have. I have listened to this. This is something that I have done. Yes, Damon Lindelof, who is, of course, he's one of the the masterminds behind The Leftovers. Uh, He sat down with Chris Ryan and Andy Greenwald of The Watch over at the Ringer for a podcast that must have been recorded early April, I think, um, and it was released after episode two of this season. So it's full tilt spoilers through two episodes of The Leftovers. Suggestive, highly suggestive of some of the direction that the season is going into as well. What did you think of the podcast? 
I thought it's very good. It, it gets a lot more into the creative process of The Leftovers. There are some things specific to season three, of course. But just generally speaking, how Damon Lindelof has viewed the show as a whole from the beginning to now, what the creative process is uh, in general in terms of the outlook of the way that Damon Lindelof looked at the show in season one when they added new writers in season two and season three and so on. Uh, how he processes this compared to Lost, his other really big show, obviously much bigger than this, that the internet fell in love with, and the expectation games that started with that show. It's just a, a very wide-ranging discussion. It really gets into TV where we are right now uh, as a whole, creators of television, what their options are, and decisions that they're making going on, what some of the inspirations were and are for Damon Lindelof as he makes The Leftovers, and where he's at just emotionally with all of this. So it is a very far-ranging discussion. If you like Damon Lindelof at all, if you're a fan of creators talking about the creative process behind some of your favorite TV shows, it's certainly well worth a listen in that regard as well. Yeah, one of the things that I really, there were a couple of things I really liked from it. Um, one was a, a greater appreciation. I think it's so easy to just like when we're talking about the successes of The Leftovers on a creative storytelling level to just call it Damon Lindelof. Uh, and he is very, very, very queer, not just in, in this podcast interview that he does, but also in a lot of the interviews. Pretty much every interview I've seen him do for season three of The Leftovers, he really stresses that he's the writer, he is a curator at best. He hands off the scripts. The scripts get made. He is really removed from the process of the actual production. Uh, and the first time he doesn't watch dailies, the first time he sees footage is the first rough cut of an episode. And he's talking about how it's a lot more creatively satisfying for him now to really surrender that level of control to an intentional organized system that he is intentionally barred from, pretty much, from having too much of his ego get in the way. So that's interesting. That's really fascinating. If you're a follower of Damon Lindelof's work, it's no surprise that he's a little bit of a sensitive guy. I just didn't realize quite how sensitive he was and that this is actually more creatively satisfying for him to kind of remove himself from that work. Yeah, he said, like, he has no job on the set. He's the writer. He's he uncomfortable show on set. He doesn't like being on set. Yeah. Right. There are a lot of these. Uh, this is the era, in some respects, of auteur television. We have Noah Hawley with uh, the shows that he's been involved with, Fargo and Legion. Uh, we have Sam Esmail at Mr. Robot. Sam Esmail writing and directing a lot of the episodes. But Sam Esmail is maybe a little more hands-off with the writing, it seems, uh, in that the writer's room on that show is breaking a lot of the stories on their own, and he's involved. But it's not necessarily to the Vince Gilligan level uh, that we see on other shows like Better Call Saul and Breaking Bad. So there are different ways to do this. I like the term that Damon Lindelof used where he said it's not that he's an auteur so much as a curator. Like he is taking ideas that emerge from that room and maybe helping them grow and develop in that universe and that it's fully a democracy in that they're coming up with ideas as a room and then working as a group to identify which ones they like the best. And it, it does sound like it's a much more collaborative process than just quote-unquote Lindelofing, but to say that his fingerprints aren't on this is, uh, I think, would be a fallacy as well. Oh, of course. Yeah, he clearly is heavily emotionally invested, literally invested all of these things in the in this product. So The existence of season three is the most Lindelof thing that I've ever heard. Uh, he yes. Goes, he goes into this on the podcast as well, about how he talks about how after season two and before the season three renewal was announced, he talked about how a lot of critics who loved season two were saying, we love season two. We're totally cool with this being the ending. And his instinct being that it wasn't that people 
were rooting for season two being the ending of The Leftovers because it was the natural ending point, his conclusion was that people wanted season two to be the end of the show because it would mean that Damon Lindelof wouldn't have a chance to screw it up as he brings the plane in for a landing, as it were. And Lindelof's immediate reaction after coming to that conclusion was, F that, we're doing season three! (laughs) Which is just such a... that, That just screams of Damon Lindelof. That's such a lost thing to do. So that cracks me up. Uh, you know, I, I think the idea of like, well, let's see if I can bring this thing in for a landing. And I think it's also worth noting that he's not, you know, he's not the only guy behind the wheel, obviously. So uh, the donkey wheel, he's not the only guy behind the flying donkey wheel. Uh, so, yeah, I, I just thought it was a really fascinating podcast. If you haven't listened to it yet and you're jonesing for more leftover stuff, you should definitely seek it out. I will say I, and I haven't read nearly probably more than even like 25 percent of the stuff that he's doing after uh, each episode. And he's really making the rounds in a way that they haven't done in the past. If you'll recall last year, we were grasping at every morsel that Vulture and websites like that got with Reza Aslan and looking for explanations behind things. And really not Lindelofing, but really spinning around trying to find these things. And Lindelof is out there, it seems like on not a victory lap, but he's just on a retirement tour for for the leftovers in that it seems like after every episode, he's out there stumping with someone else. And there is information about each episode and the general direction of this season that is available through these conversations that we haven't necessarily had in previous seasons of the leftovers. So that's part of it. It's not it's not the same experience that we've had in the past in terms of reading these things in that he is getting into the overall direction of the season. And not necessarily spoiling particular plot points per se, but I think thematically giving a lot more clear structure of what uh, this season looks like than we've had in the past. So I think these discussions are necessarily going to be influenced by some element of that. Not spoilers at all, but just discussions of uh, of where we're going from here thematically. We're not going to go down the wrong holes per se because there are some doors that he's just shutting. All right. Well, let's let's kick some doors down. Let's uh, let's talk Nora Durst this week. This was a big Nora episode. The Nora episodes are. Ha- has there been a bad Nora episode? I don't think so. I think like every Nora episode has been phenomenal and arguably a top five episode of The Leftovers. I think that's right. I don't think there's been a bad Nora episode, and <laughs> this is certainly no exception. On a rewatch, I even liked it more than I liked it the first time. It it's not just because. Carrie Coon is just knocking it out of the park, uh, although that is a huge, huge part of it. Which was very heavily referenced uh, in our in our feedback we had from Dave Baker. Carrie Coon has to at least get an Emmy nomination, right? And we also had from Matt Campbell. Carrie Coon is incredible. I hope after The Leftovers in Fargo, she gets more and more leading roles and highly acclaimed stuff because every time she's on screen, I'm fixated by every word and expression. Lots of love coming in from the listeners about Carrie Coon here as Nora Durst. Yeah, and I agree with both Dave and Matt. I, I don't know what the final season of the leftovers were will hold in store in that regard it doesn't seem like this is a show that hbo has ever really regularly stumped for in terms of award season it would be nice to see them get some recognition carrie coon is certainly incredibly deserving uh she's now on fargo josh and playing a lead role there so where's the fargo podcast antonio why doesn't that exist here oh boy because i uh, honestly it departed josh uh, <laughs> That's what happened to the Fargo podcast. Uh, the Fargo podcast uh, lifted on uh, the last episode of last season. No, we've got the leftovers here. I'm talking about Better Call Saul on post show recaps. I'm just simply not really available from a bandwidth standpoint to do a Fargo podcast this year. Same here. I know. Yeah, you've got a lot going on uh, with the Hollywood Reporter and things that you're covering. A lot to look forward to in that regard. I'm certainly excited about the things you're going to be getting into, but that just means neither of us are really free uh, to to do a Fargo podcasting in this season. So it's not. Super- 
super conducive to podcasting, and we have to pick and choose our battles. So there's no Fargo podcast on post-show recaps this season. For those of you who have been asking, we've been hearing it from a bunch of you. Um, that being said, Mike Bloom and Jeremiah Panhorst, who were both part of our Fargo podcast for season two, they are podcasting about Fargo, and they're over at the Jay and Jack Network. So you should go seek that out. Find Mike and Jeremiah. They're on Twitter at a Mike Bloom type. Jeremiah's at Jay Panhorst. Seek those guys out. They're doing weekly Fargo podcasting if you're really missing Fargo podcast. Yeah, I also heard they really like dogs. So if you guys want to talk all your leftovers related dog theories with you them, you keep I'm sure being that the guy who brings up the dogs first. I just want, I just really need to point that out. Yeah, you, you can't troll me if I'm just putting it out there as a defense mechanism, Josh. That's my theory as I'm operating right now. It's oh not working God. very well, though. I'm triggering myself at this all point. All right, well, let's get away from dogs and let's get away from Fargo, two of your top triggers. I would love to rank the Antonio <laughs> triggers at some point. In that's time. a different, that's an off season podcast. <laughs> that's not Josh. on post show recaps, I don't think. I think that's on a Skype call between you and I and maybe yes, it's on a therapy session. Maybe maybe we'll live stream it. Uh, we'll, uh, what we'll do is we'll go to a hotel in St. Louis and have yes. a nice long talk about that. Yes, absolutely. All right. So let's talk about Nora a little bit. Where should we start with Nora's adventure this week? Well, Nora, a lot of people were questioning ultimately what her mindset is in this episode. Jackie Tomer uh, sums this up pretty well. Is Nora going to Australia as a customer or as a fraud investigator? I'm unsure what she was thinking at the end and would love to hear your thoughts. I'd love to hear your thoughts, Josh. Nora, throughout this episode, we see flashes of her remembering things, whether it's her children, whether it's Lily, uh, the departure uh, itself with her children leaving and all of it. So we're seeing a glimpse at what's really in her head throughout this episode. And yet she puts a different face on for the world, I think. So is what we're seeing in the flashes, is that where Nora's at? Is she really vulnerable here or is she going as the ultimate skeptic, which is what we usually see Nora Durst as? Is she going to shut this thing down? Yeah, that's a great question. And it really wasn't something that I'd considered too heavily uh, immediately after watching the episode of like, what's Nora's plan? I kind of was just on board with, oh, God, I think she's going to do it. And it feels like that's sort of the plot juice of the season. Like, if there is one side of The Leftovers where people are starting to rally around the miracles that surround Kevin and hoisting him up as a messiah uh, and being this new leader of this new movement in this you know world that's been rocked by the departure and feels like it's about to get rocked by something else um that if that's if that's on one end of the spectrum then nora is very clearly on the other end of the spectrum based on how that first episode ends that we do get this glimpse into the future of nora which is pretty much confirmed by Lindelof that that's nora durst in in his uh in his podcast right I think so. Like, I, I, like the alternate universe theories that that's a fake Nora. Like, I feel like that's. I feel like that that's shutting down. Yeah, I do too. Uh, we don't know exactly when that is, or how we'll get there, or if there's some. What happens in the interim? We don't really know that. But it's certain, and we've always been operating under this theory as well that that is most likely Nora Durst at a later date. Yeah. That's the. Uh, that's how you and I have been looking at it. That's certainly how we've been looking. So at we will it. continue right. to look at it that way. So there's Nora on that other side of the plot spectrum, though, um, and we know that she will be around sometime from now, and she doesn't seem like she's especially content or happy. And I think that with that in mind, you could see based on this past episode, based on Don't Be Ridiculous and where it leaves off, holy crap, Nora is going to Australia so she can zap herself to like the other side of the galaxy or whatever the hell she's going to do. Uh, but it could also be that she's going there to do something, um, 
you know, a little bit more traditionally Nora Durst, although Nora taking a huge risk and hopping into a burning machine seems like something she would do as well. But it's equally Nora Durst for her to be very skeptical, very cynical, and going specifically to Australia to shut this shit down. I think that's very much a possibility, but I think that my my feeling would be that even if that's the reason that she's going because she's going to investigate this and bust this. I think when she lays eyes on whatever she's laying eyes on, I feel like that skeptic is going to, it's either going to turn or she's going to give a few less Fs and maybe hop in the box anyway. Yeah, that it does seem to be a conflict that will emerge because the conflict that exists right now, and it's not on the surface, it seems to be under the surface, but Nora, and, and we mentioned this a lot on our recap podcast, the interesting dynamic between Nora and Kevin, which is that Nora has her job as a fraud investigator and throughout, and of course throughout season two when the girls quote unquote were a secondary departure and obviously weren't, Nora is always the ultimate skeptic. She's always the one pushing these buttons. She's always the one not believing these things. She's always been the one who is out to disprove these these theories about the, the craziness. And even in this episode, she's doing it. And we are seeing that she's pushing back against the deification of Pillar Guy and ultimately really doing that in a way that's hostile and aggressive. And yet she's also doing that with Kevin, where, where there's Kevinism and she's making jokes about it and throwing the book around and really not being willing to engage with Kevin in a discussion about the very real fact that he didn't die those couple of times and really pushing back against that. So we have that Nora Durst who publicly is like the ultimate skeptic. It's her job. It's her livelihood. What we see in these private moments in a conversation, for example, that she has with Marklin Baker in the hotel we do see these flashes of what's actually in her mind and the things that she's thinking about when she hears statements about her family and getting triggered. And there is a lot of vulnerability there. Uh, maybe the ultimate skeptic, uh, the, the pushback, is to cover up the fact that she desperately wants to believe. And I think the conversation with Marklin Baker is really telling because he, like her, is a one in 156. He is one of the one in fours, where he was part of a group of four people, like Nora with her family. Three of the other people in the group departed, which are the odds of which are like a one in 156,000. And he is of a certain mindset. She thinks maybe he's suicidal. His response is, I want to take some effing control. I'm not suicidal. I just want to take some control of my life. And I think that she might find that to be particularly resonant. We see her doing that after this conversation in this episode on multiple occasions. She goes to see Lily when she's at the airport and the machine stops working. She lifts the arm by hand when she's sick of the trolling uh, or sick of the deification of the guy. She shows up and takes control of that situation by printing the picture out. So I think there is some particularly resonant stuff uh, with the Marklin Baker resonant conversation. Evil. The resonant evil of it all. And uh, talk about people coming back to life. Uh, yeah, so there is that element. Resonant evil. I don't ultimately know where this resonant evil is going with Nora Durst, but it is, uh, it's highly concerning. It's fascinating if you watch that Marklin Baker conversation because it starts on one level where she seems to be thinking that he's running what she calls a carrot stick. And it ends almost like a conversation that somebody has with, within, the con within the context of about 10 minutes, where by the end of it, they have asked you to go commit suicide, and you're thinking about it. Mm. And that's ultimately what this is. It's like, go kill yourself. Yes, there may be something on the other side, but you're ultimately admitting that you're willing to end your life in this plane to go pursue something somewhere else. And if that's not a suicide call, Josh, 
I don't know what is. Well, how do you how do you reject a man with two degrees from Yale, Antonio? Is my question. Very easily by telling him he's out of touch and he lives in a bubble. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that uh, by taking him to Kentucky for a week. Uh, but yeah, that that's what I, that's how I would do it. I don't know about how anyone else would do it. Uh, that's but great. that's but, a yeah. great note from the podcast too with Lindelof, where he was talking about sending the script to Marklin Baker, and he had Marklin Baker had no notes except for the line where he says, you know, like "Don't f with me. I have a degree from Yale." Marklin Baker's only note apparently was like, "I if you want." I actually have two degrees from Yale. <laughs> yeah, a little love is like you're definitely saying yeah. that in the <laughs> show is, now, like the so two great. degrees thing. Yeah, it's funny. But it is it is very telling that that she after that meeting goes and and watches what what amount to be 119 suicide notes, and it does play very cultish, and yet she does seem impacted by it. And I I'm left worried ultimately by the end of this episode that we are going to see a Nora Durst. Uh, who is not going to Australia as a fraud investigator, but possibly as a customer. And I think that she's always been towing that line. Totally possible she has no idea, too, where it's right. literally That's just what like, I, mean. like I, I think that I probably should just go and I'll figure it out when I get there. But she's like in a place where she's got like nothing to lose, she feels like, which is sad. It makes you wonder if in her conquest to bust all these stories, if it's secondarily a search for the truth, like maybe she's ultimately hoping to find one that she can't debunk and find one that that can't be explained. And the irony of all that going on, of course, is she shares a bed with someone who has a story that is really hard to explain. And yet she's laughing in the face of that. So it's very complex, to say the least. And the complexity of the character is really paid such great uh, detail by the performance from Carrie Coon, as Dave and Matt noted. And so there is this thing where she's wearing this tough exterior, but she's breaking her own arm and getting Wu-Tang Band tattoos. And we see some of that greatness in scenes with her and Erica, where she's showing this vulnerability and telling us as an audience, really, for the first time that the Nora curse thing of it all. Like we've seen her portray this consideration or fear that she might be doomed last season, especially in lens, but here she's articulating it and, and feeling like maybe she's cursed. And we see that evolve throughout this episode with her and technology and all of that. Uh, Trent C had a question about that. Trent C said, so was it a big deal that all of the electronics Nora tried to use went wonky? I found the infant on the lap airport check-in scene poignant because I believe it led to her side trip to see Lily. This has to be the only show where two women bouncing on a trampoline can stir up feelings of potential dread. Mm. I don't know about all of that in that I found the trampoline scene to be joyous, but I do leave this episode with a feeling of dread regarding Nora Durst. And I'm wondering, Josh, do you have a, a secondary take or a more nuanced take than we got into on Sunday about this electronic stuff with Nora? What are we meant to take away from that? Uh, and in, is the infant thing a big part of that or is it just something that triggered her? I mean, I think that just on a thematic level, the idea that her electronics are betraying her, uh, that her electronics are not working, I think is just a sign that things are not working for Nora Durst right now. Like, simple things, the things that should be the easiest to control. Like, these are devices that are, are created for our convenience, that should be pretty easy to wield, and that it's all failing her. Um, I think that it's a sign that even in this three-year time jump um, since season two, where it seems like, for the most part, everybody's pretty happy. Uh, you know, John Murphy and Lori are married, and, you know, it seems like Kevin is pretty satisfied with Nora, except for the times when he's pulling a bag over his head. And Tommy's got a new job as a cop. And Erica Murphy seems to be doing really well. Uh, so I, I feel like 
this is this is the episode that really shows us that things have not changed all that much for Nora. Uh, and Nora, three years after we've seen her last, and you know, days before the seven year anniversary of the sudden departure, is as broken as ever. Uh, that's thematically what I was getting. Do you think that there's plot utility in the fact that electronics don't work around Nora Durst? Is this a sign that she truly is Nora Cursed? Well, that wrist is not as broken as ever. It's as good as new. My take on it is still very similar to where I was at in the immediate aftermath of this episode, which is that that is something that anybody who uses a debit card or anybody who deals with this sort of thing has experienced on a daily basis, These, this technology just not working. And yet here is a person who is a skeptic to the ways of the universe expressing itself through these things. Normally she's pushing back against these theories. We've even seen it in the context of this episode, her pushing back against there being a greater explanation for things. And yet she assigns value to the point where this really pushes her over the edge when the technology doesn't work. And she's not just going to go along to get along and say she wants to travel with an infant on her lap. She wants it to work the way that it's supposed to work for her. And when it doesn't, she does do what Marklin Baker says he wants to do with his life, which is take some effing control. And she lifts that that arm up at the uh, airport parking area. So it is something where I feel like she it, it speaks to the Nora cursed of it all in that I think she assigns value specific to her to something that happens to us on a daily basis. And it's not something where I would look at that and be like, technology doesn't work for me. I've had problems with the chip reader the last five times I've gone to a store. Therefore, I'm screwed up. She's taking it that way, though. And I do do think it speaks to this thing where she is internalizing a lot of the external conflicts that she's experiencing and finding ways to put herself at the center of them. And I think we see why in this episode, even explaining that she had a broken leg after the departure and everyone thought that that meant that she was cursed. And she's carrying that with her in a lot of what she does. And that's the kind of person who may be susceptible to this microwave thing. Uh, I think we had a great observation from Humby, our friend Umberto. And Humby said, I really believe the microwave explanation is bull. They are targeting the one in four people because they are the most desperate. The way it seems to work is that the last person to make a pitch and get someone to commit gets the next turn to go into the microwave. And later for that next person to be able to do so, they have to convince someone with their pitch. If that's the case, who will Nora be targeting? Do you think that there is this level to it, Josh, or is it simply that maybe she is more vulnerable and was targeted because of her, her vulnerability? I mean, or is it just, just a coincidence that the person who's pitching her is himself a one in four? I feel like with Nora Durst, I mean, certainly there are aspects of this that can be explained as coincidental, that she is just the, I don't know, the benefactor of some really, really crazy cosmic bad fortune. Uh, I don't know if the benefactor is the right word, but she's the person who's on the receiving end of such a thing. But that said, we've also seen other people express that Nora is a very important person. Um, last season, talk of, of her being the vessel for the demon Azrael uh, and being a central figure right. in that regard. It's not impossible that the people who are behind the microwave are people who are also aware of Nora's supposed, um, you know, importance in that regard, uh, or maybe see her as vitally important for some other reason, perhaps even know a thing or two about 
about Kevinism and know how close she is to that. I mean, we know nothing about this party is what I'm trying to say. But what we do know is that Nora has been a central figure on this show. And beyond that, there are people within this universe that view Nora with great importance. So I feel like Nora Durst is being specifically targeted. The question is why. Uh, And I don't think it's just because of the one in four thing. And that puts her on the same pedestal as Mark Lynn Baker and anybody else who has those odds. I think that there is something unique in the eyes of many people about Nora's situation. Well, and you can foresee then a scenario where if you flash forward uh, however many years in this person's life, she doesn't want to go by that name anymore. She doesn't want to be known as Nora Durst anymore because Nora Durst is a person who's associated with all these things and does get targeted by people with their wacko theories. And I don't know if uh, if it's interesting that she would think that she could be a lens. So there's room in her brain to think that she would be the source of all these things and that she might also buy into a theory that says there's some specific radiation rays that produce these things and that by replicating those rays you can do it in other words it sounds like if there is maybe a scientific explanation for what happened she's interested in hearing more about that it's when it turns into the spiritual or the crazy that she pushes back against it and she is hardened in that regard and as as a result i don't know a soft j right in in uh in hardened Yes, uh, hardened in that <laughs> regard. Hardened in that regard. Yes, uh, and like a jalapeno. Uh, I don't know ultimately if that is if that means she's going to be a good recruiter. If that if that means, as Humby says, that for her to take the step into the machine, she actually has to find the next recruiter. Is this like a pyramid microwave scheme? I don't know. I don't know to what extent that will be in play. But she certainly is ripe for this. But it doesn't have to be that we're leading to Nora Durst getting into the microwave. There are other things we could see this character going down. She could destroy the microwave. She could easily destroy in the microwave. In epic fashion that would right. like really alienate her from everybody. You know, right. like, There's a lot of possibilities with what Nora could do now. Uh, and I think it's intentionally vague at the end of the episode. I'm really excited to see where they take it. Yeah, and we had a good uh, comment about this from Peter Politano, which is our last real discussion we'll have uh, in the, this Nora section, but it leads into a great observation from great friend of post-show recaps, Colin Stone. Uh, Peter Politano said, maybe a crazy take, but it felt like Nora's heartbreaking, gut-wrenching journey throughout the episode was her slowly devolving into an antichrist figure. Her anger and irrational behavior built throughout the episode, resulting in her slowly becoming almost completely unhinged. The contrast of the episode one Messiah building of Kevin, at least in others' minds, versus Nora's collapse into darkness. Hence, the perfect strangers are Kevin and Nora, all alluded to in the theme music actor and even episode name. Is that something that's emerging here, Josh? Not that that she is uh, an antichrist per se, but that she's emerging as as maybe on an opposite path of Kevin. Interesting. Uh, well, can you, can you, as the person on this podcast who is more versed in Perfect Strangers, uh, could you tell me the relationship between Balky and Larry? Like, clearly, are they like major, major opposites on Perfect Strangers that have love for each other? There is that. Is, yeah. that, a, is that a fair way of describing them? Yeah, in a way. Uh, it is mainly that Balky is a Borat-type figure, for lack of a better thing. He's a very non-nuanced uh, foreigner from some place, Meepos, which is uh, similarly like maybe a Mediterranean or uh, Eastern European island, I believe. 
uh, and he ends up moving with his cousin in Chicago, and it's a distant thing. They're very different, and you've got this odd couple thing that that develops, and it's very much uh, I'm teaching you about America, but maybe Balky's ways are are also better, and and even because Larry is very neurotic and worried about all these things, and and Balky is very laid back, so so there is an opposites element that evolves there, and they're e- they each end up teaching each other how to be a more well-rounded person through their different. Differences. I mean, that's the pitch of the show. They live together. The comedy emerges from their differences and they deal with situations differently and they both work together to make each other better people ultimately. So you can thematically extract that and apply that to the Kevin and Nora relationship for sure of, of two people who have different approaches, different philosophies, who are dealing with their own different problems, who can come together and make each other a little bit better, make each other a little bit more whole if they can understand each other's point of view. Um, like that feels that feels similar to me, at least just like on a very surface level if you're comparing it to perfect strangers but i do think that by the end of the episode there is that moment where nora is like hey don't worry about the bag we all have our thing you know and she's really trying to just like get out of the conversation so is he by dumping the baby news on her although i'm sure we'll talk about that as well uh i i think that by the end of this episode that while they're in the same room and while it all seems to be water under the bridge i feel like they're further apart than ever before yeah i mean that you can't watch what happens when he asks about the baby and watch her response and not feel like oh my gosh these two people are in two totally different situations right now she literally laughs in his face there does seem to be a sense of kevin stepping up into the light as nora plunges into the darkness um right you know what if you want to call that an antichrist figure uh in nora durst that's pretty harsh um but you know maybe it's not completely unwarranted at least in terms of what the stakes are for this season that perhaps we're setting Nora up to be a sympathetic antagonist is is maybe a way that I would describe it but even I don't ever want to call Nora Durst an antagonist she's re- she's representing a different point of view a different school of thought in fact if you want to break it down into my other favorite show uh if you want to break it down in lost parlance it's kind of we might be heading into man of science man of faith territory where yes you know it's that there's the person who is who is becoming converted by the sheer fact of there are miracles happening and I'm at the center of them and I should stop resisting that and I should start leaning into it and then right. you still have the one person who despite seeing a lot of this stuff refuses to acknowledge it refuses to accept it and that's a person who might have to come around to that point of view yeah it's no i mean i don't think it's a it's a coincidence that kevin wants the miracle of life and nora wants to deny that miracle like there is that they want to create this thing and the great part about that of course is that kevin himself has been struggling with that man of science man of faith dichotomy before he ever went into the ground and before he was ever shot in the chest he was pushing back against this the patty of it all i'm crazy i'm not going to acknowledge you or respond to you i'm not going to ask you questions and yet there were things going on in his life that he couldn't explain and that put him in a very difficult position because he didn't want to embrace the the faith of it all. He had these huge confrontations with Kevin Sr. in season one about that. And that was a, a constant struggle for him. And the number one, when you say sympathetic antagonist, you hit on the thing that Colin Stone really observed, I think, quite brilliantly about this episode. Uh, and I've gone back and found other instances where this theory has some legs in this particular episode. Colin just observed that it was interesting, to say the least, that Nora was in a hotel room in a white robe smoking. 
and that that she Colin said my hottest take is that the guilty remnant outfit in the international assassin closet is actually for Nora and not for Kevin that Nora will emerge into the guilty remnant role and it's fascinating to look at her actions in this episode that Peter notes that she's becoming unhinged at this episode through that guilty remnant lens let me give you a few examples Josh uh, first there is the fact that after she meets with Mark Lynn Baker even though she's in a non-smoking hotel as the desk clerk has been very specific to mention she puts the tinfoil hat on the uh, on the smoke detector and she puts the white robe on uh, the, the garb of the guilty remnant all white and she sits there and smokes as she watches the suicide notes. So a woman in white smoking, not necessarily guilty remnant, but let me give you a couple of other things. There is the whole interaction that she has throughout the episode with Brett Butler that ends with her pulling what can only be described as a guilty remnant move, where she ultimately just trolls them by shattering their belief system, putting a picture up and wordlessly standing there and not defending it and wordlessly defiantly walking away after she puts the picture of the dead guy's body up and is being yelled at and hated for it. She's generated a negative response, just like the guilty remnant used to. And then finally, there's a little deeper cut here. When she's talking to Mark Lynn Baker in the hotel, she says, are you married, Mark? Recognizing, I think, that he has nothing to sacrifice if he's willing to go into the box. And he says, not anymore, without giving much more detail. And he asks her, and she says, I'm in a committed relationship. And he says, in what could only be described as certainly a callback to the guilty remnant, well, I guess I'm just wasting my breath. Mm. And she says, yes, you are. So it's almost a stop wasting your breath scenario, which is the, one of the catchphrases of the guilty remnant. So what about that, Josh? Nora is certainly displaying. This can't be accidental, right? That she's displaying these guilty remnant attributes throughout the episode. Accidental from a writing level. No, um, right. I, I'll, I'll stop far short of, you know, subscribing to any theory that Nora Durst is secretly guilty remnant? No. Yeah. yeah. No, I'm, Josh, it's in the edit. She's going to do this. I am way <laughs> out on that. So we're not going to even go down that uh, down that road. But I, I think that there is something really, really juicy to the idea that Nora is representing what the guilty remnant have represented on this show before. Uh, that if we are done with the guilty remnant, if that, you know, drone strike that takes out Meg and Evie and the rest, if that's really the end of the guilty remnant, storyline but that torch is now being carried by nora whose state of mind and state of being and just where she is and who she is uh that she is embodying a lot of what the guilty remnant embodied like how are you guys like even going about your lives and uh how are you believing in this nonsense and you know and the fact that she's in white the fact that she's smoking all the examples that you pointed out i think really sync up with that on a thematic level really well and if the central conflict of the show on like a human level has been in the past between Kevin and Patty, or Kevin and the Guilty Remnant, uh, as embodied by Patty, that I think it would be a really neat idea to finish this trilogy of The Leftovers with those same ideological conflicts in play, with a different face attached to the opposite end of whatever Kevin has to go up against, uh, and having that be a familiar face in Nora, and having her represent familiar ideological standpoints in the guilty remnant. I think that's really cool. I just don't expect there to be like Nora is the guilty remnant or anything like that. No, it is. It does seem a little more thematic at this point. And it seems like it isn't a careening car that's going off the tracks, a railroad car that you can't stop. Uh, it just seems like there are certainly these thematic representations where it goes. I think that's what we're trying to track going forward here. 
But I, I, it brings up an observation from Brendan Fitzpatrick related to Tommy and Nora in this episode. Brendan said, do you feel like Tommy went too far saying what he did to Nora? Or do you feel like it was a truth Nora ultimately needed to hear, that the world doesn't revolve around her? We all need to be brought back to Earth. Interesting wording, Fitzy, sometimes, even though Tommy was pretty harsh. Uh, do you have a different read about Tommy Garvey's comments in light of what we're talking about with Nora? Was, was that some tough love that she needed to hear? Yeah, I mean, I was a dick to Tommy on the podcast uh, when we recorded after the episode. But I do think upon reflection and thinking about what Brendan is saying here, I think there's a lot of truth to that. And I think that, you know, Tommy's harshest line in the whole thing is after Nora delivers a pretty harsh line to him. Yeah. Uh, and Nora is the one who says, you want the truth? I wish you'd never brought me that baby. And Tommy says something to the effect of like, I was bringing her to my dad. I didn't even know you existed. Um, I think that that is tough love, and I and I think it's a fair response. I think it's also accurate. Uh, Tommy was not bringing Lily to Nora Durst at that point in his life, uh, unless he was really hooked into Mapleton gossip, and you don't get the sense that he was no. uh, pre or post departure. And I don't think pre departure Nora Durst is really much of anything in that town, unless I'm wrong about that. Uh, I think that that's a you know, fully fair thing to say. I didn't know you existed. I didn't know you were a thing. I did not bring this baby to you. I brought this baby to my dad. Um, and I think that maybe that is something that Nora could stand to hear, that your problems and your woe and your miserable existence does not stand center in this universe. Right. Well, that, and that's a tough pill to swallow for a person who is a one in 156, right? They're, when they're a one in, when they're a one in four or a hundred, one in 156,000, they kind of do feel singled out a little bit. And it's natural that you would evolve those feelings. Like, why me? Why was I 1 in 156? And what we see from Mark Lynn Baker in this episode, similarly situated, is he wants to take control. The interesting thing about that is that's where Nora Durst was on October 14th. She was trying to take control of her life. We see her interview with Lucy, the mayor of Mapleton, who was not yet the mayor and who needed a campaign manager down the stretch. And Nora was saying, I just want something for myself. That's this why I want this. I need something for myself. And we saw her feeling out of control and feeling like she was powerless in the context of her family. She had these kids and her husband was getting to do whatever he wanted, quite literally, in fact. And in Nora's world, she needed something for herself. And so this is where she's been even before the departure. And... So you can imagine where you take those feelings and you put on top of that the idea that maybe you have been singled out for some particular reason. Maybe something is wrong with you. It would be very natural that you would think and you would start to see this through your own lens. Like, why did you bring her to me? When in reality, that wasn't the case at all. And she does need to hear that on some level. The unfortunate thing about it is it certainly seems like what we see throughout this episode is the case being built for why Nora Durst might get into that microwave and why that might be something she might find appealing. She's an intelligent person and she is skeptical of these things. And yet I feel like what we're, what we're meant to feel at the end of this episode, it, it gets back to how we started this Nora discussion is the Jackie Tomeyer question, which is, is she going as a customer or to bust it up? And I feel like when we leave this, I don't know. And I feel like that's the achievement of this episode, that we bring Nora Durst along this path so far that by the end of the path, we're wondering, uh, is she possibly going to do this thing? Should we be worried? The majesty of that conversation with Mark Lynn Baker is it's essentially a request for her to kill herself. And by the end of a 10-minute hotel conversation, we're left wondering, 
maybe she's going to do it. And that's really difficult to stomach when you're talking about a character that we love like Nora Durst and that we would hate to see this outcome for like Nora Durst. And it's really interesting knowing that it probably isn't going to happen, that we do see her in the future on some level. Uh, we'll get into some of the other theories about that when we talk into, about the Australia of it all. But there is an interesting juxtaposition, right, Josh, in this episode, as you noted, with Erica. Uh, what, do we, what do we know about Erica? Is this, is this her last appearance? We had a question about this, right? Yeah, we had a question about this. This is from Jacob. Jacob wrote in and said, I loved seeing Erica back, however, briefly. I thought Alan Sepinwall made a really interesting observation in his recap. He said, even before the Wu-Tang came on, it was great to see Regina King do her thing again in this role, while Max Richter's piano theme cued us, all of us, into feeling things deeply. (laughs) But Erica's return was bittersweet. On the one hand, the story seems to have largely moved on from her, and King is busy with American crime and 60 other things. But on the other hand, it's moved on from her in part because Erica is doing okay for herself, and The Leftovers has no room for healthy souls. She's better off with us not watching. Jacob continues, If this is the last time we see Erica, which seems likely given the action looks to be shifting to Australia, would you be satisfied with that? Is the implication that the character has found some sort of peace fulfilling to you? Is this really it? If this really is it, kudos to Regina King for such incredible work on the show and on American Crime. At the same time, she is the best. Um, In his podcast, Damon Lindelof confirmed they had Regina King for one scene uh, this season. So, yeah, that's it. That's That's the Erica Murphy show, it seems like. Yeah, and I don't need to see her and John uh, falling apart. In part because we saw a lot of the basis for that. We already last saw season. it. We can, yeah, yeah, we can, we can yada yada that stuff. They yeah. were on the outs at you know in season two. Everything that was going on in season two was only heightening the fact that they were already on the outs going before season two. Uh, so we know we knew that that marriage was dissolving. I don't know that we always necessarily knew because they seemed like they were really tight. So it does feel a little bit out of nowhere. I don't know people. People have different sides to them that you don't always see. I'm okay with it. You know, if it's a production reality that Regina King is not super available. Uh, she's got a lot on her plate, as mentioned. Um, and I think that the scene that we do get her in, I think, ties up the character pretty nicely. Like, if John is going to be the guy who really can't get over what happened to Evie, um, then Erica is the parent who has at least accepted, I buried my kid. Like, at least I know where she is. She's in the ground. Um, and she now is able to move on and still have a pretty civil, if not outright, friendship. Uh, you know, an imperfect friendship, perhaps. I think that Nora, <laughs> Nora and Erica are imperfect friends. Uh, and she is a trampoline. So, like, her life is fine. And I do think that there is something to the idea that The Leftovers doesn't have a lot of room for healthy souls, at least in terms of the main action. Hopefully, that's the resolution. I do hope that some of these souls get nourished a little bit more by the time this thing is is over otherwise we've gone way too far full circle back to season one territory uh but but i think that erica at least uh if this is it for her we're already through with evie which i'm becoming more and more at peace with um i'm I'm good with this I'm, i'm pretty pretty happy with the erica scene that we do get here in season three it is uh it is a situation where it does feel i think as seppenwall observes it does feel as though this show maybe doesn't have room for these characters who have found some peace or who have found some clarity uh, that the search for answers from a lot of these characters, whether it's Nora, Matt or Kevin, is more important than the characters who may have found some answers of their own uh, and who aren't searching. Erica is a good example of that. We had questions uh, from Andiamo and Noah about Janelle Maloney. 
And Noah said, is this it for Janelle Maloney on The Leftovers? She seems very detached from the show on social media. She's tweeting about how American crime is the only part that matters besides West Wing. Uh, If she's done, she got a terrible disservice on this show. What was going on with her after the departure? Why did she wake up? Why bring such a great actress in to play this non-role? And Andiamo says, they yada yada right over the fact that Mary left Miracle and is apparently not in a coma again. I would have expected a scene of Matt at least watching as they cross the bridge. He's really starting to seem like a creep again josh leaving the matter of, of it aside because we'll get into that in the discussion of kevinism uh was this we talk about regina king i think we're on the same page that we're okay with this being it for regina king are you okay with that being it for janelle maloney uh not leaving aside the fact that she's a talented actress most of the people on the show are we, do you feel like the character ever really gave anything uh and are you satisfied with this ending for mary if this is it you know, I've, I've never been majorly attached to Mary, uh, and I think that's because for all of my sins, I'm not somebody who's watched The West Wing. Uh, you are which, a sinner. That, you had to atone for that one. I know. I know that that's high on the list. Wait uh, till October and make that on the uh, yeah. The, make some atonements for we'll that see, one. We'll see. We'll see. We'll uh, see. And and so I've never been crazily attached to that character, like I imagine people who really love Janelle Maloney are. You know, I think that that's pr- somebody who you were waiting to see wake up. I even remember, you know, talking through the early days of this show with you. Antonio and you mentioning like this is a notable actor you don't have this person on the show unless you really plan on doing something there has that something really happened maybe not um but I don't know I mean it's sort of the same thing that I feel about Jill Garvey frankly which is like if that was the end for Jill Garvey in the premiere that final scene with Kevin I hope not because I love that character and I'd love to see more with her but after this coming week's episode, Antonio, we're only going to have four more episodes of The Leftovers. Right now, we only have five more episodes of this show, right? Or six more episodes of this show. We're coming really, really close to the end of this thing. And I don't know that Mary needs to be very, very central to everything. I think that Matt is more of a central figure. I think that Matt's relationship with Kevinism and his faith has been more front and center. And that, and Mary has been a part of that story, but hasn't had her own story to begin with and it feels really late to suddenly give her her own story it would have to be a hell of an episode to justify the mary road trip episode and if she's leaving miracle if she's leaving jardin and if the show is shifting focus to australia there's just not a lot of room for her left with all of that being said given the way that the show plays with perspective and starts to reveal scenes that we hadn't seen previously, uh, different you know sides of a conversation, um, you know different different views into a, into the same room that we've been in before. That was a real hallmark of season two, especially. I think it's entirely possible, if not probable, that we're going to get Matt's side of things at some point, right. and we will see more Mary through that. Like I think right. that we'll we'll have a, a fuller understanding of Mary's feelings in all of this and why she departed Matt, why she left that relationship. Right. I, I do think we'll get further clarity on that fuller go easy on the pepsi yeah i agree <laughs> uh i do think that that is uh th- i will say though there is one element of that that is uh, that is i think uh, instructive of something bigger yeah. which is matt believed that mary was out of the coma because of jardin that at least he was preaching that we know matt doesn't always practice what he preaches but at least he was he was putting that forward in his church and she was playing that role clearly her leaving 
is part of her saying, I don't believe that. Like, I don't believe that this has to do with miracle. I don't believe this is a spiritual thing because of this place. There's a scientific explanation. As a result, I'm not going to go back into a coma if I move out of here. And we don't know who was right about that, if one of them was right, because we don't see that element of the story. The reason that's important is Matt has a very similar belief about why Kevin can't die. Matt believes Kevin can't die in Miracle. Matt has very specifically articulated that. Matt doesn't necessarily believe that Kevin can't die overall, but that it has to do with the powers of that particular place. I think the whether or not Mary is out of a coma because of Miracle, it's part of that same Q&A that involves can Kevin die outside of Miracle. And if Matt's proven wrong about the healing properties of the, the area in one story, then his theories about the healing properties of the area in another, at least to us as viewers, have at least some less credence. They're not disproven, but I think we can assume, like if, for example, if Mary were to cross that bridge and die, or go back into a coma, then we could say, okay, Kevin, don't die anywhere outside of Miracle because you will die. Uh, so I, I do think that it, we could see that, we could have seen that confirmed with the things that happened with Mary, but it's not dispositive. But not seeing that doesn't really give us any more info about whether Matt's right about this Kevin thing. And I think that's important. And so that part is important. As for wasting Janelle Maloney, I don't know. Uh, I'm of a couple minds on this. I'm, a, I'm as big a West Wing fan as you could possibly be. And yet I'm not a great fan of Janelle Maloney, the actress, as regards uh, her takes on everything. Like, I just, I feel like she uh, has been, she's really great in certain roles. I think that she was cast well for Mary in terms of this this horrible uh, thing that happened to Mary and having to play this beautiful doll, essentially, that Matt had. Uh, she really did well with that uh, in terms of the physical performance of that role. And then it makes sense that when she wakes up, she'll be the kind of person that you want to see on screen. But if that's all you get, that's all you get. I don't know that she serves a larger role in this story other than to show that you can alienate people, that Matt cared for Mary like crazy and did everything for her. He worshipped her as Carrie Coon points out in this episode and yet your quest for spirituality can push away the people who are willing to do that for you or who are willing to benefit from that and that's the interesting thing about kevinism right as as it could present this wedge between nora and kevin that nora has been willing to put up with a lot of what kevin has brought to the table including the fact that when she walks in on him uh, with the bag over his head she's willing to just look away or look the other way because she understands it so there are these reasons why these two people should be together and yet it could be that Kevin's, if it develops, fervent quest for answers in spirituality could push away Nora. And similarly, Matt's similar things pushed away Mary, even though there was this devotion between the two of them and there could have been this great bond. So that is, uh, I think, the relationship between Matt and Nora is really at this point more about showing how you can be so nuts about a thing that you can drive away the thing that's most important to you in the world. And rather than Matt running to go with Nora, he's staying in Mary or no to go with Mary. He's staying in Miracle and he's pursuing Kevinism. And this is Matt being crazy and giving up other things, including the things that were most important to him in life uh, to pursue this thing. So it's a, she's more representative, I think of unfortunately the role that she serves thematically for these other characters but it's still a good use of that of janelle maloney to serve that role in this story uh i don't know that we were ever going to get a more satisfying ending to that to that story and as far as the mary character goes we we still don't really know what role she may play in kevinism the idea that 
even being in the same uh, she didn't she didn't wake up fully until Kevin showed up in Miracle. She woke up a little bit, but she didn't wake up fully until he showed up. So is he part of that story? Is Matt lionizing that? Is he playing that up? The interesting thing about Matt in this episode is dude is clearly willing to lie for a good religious story. As we see with Pillar Guy, uh, they, there are all these testimonials on video of people willing to say that there was a miracle that happened. You can see very quickly how a, a religion or a myth can build, and you you can see Matt's role in that, that he is the preacher. The preacher did this. The preacher did that. These people are saying that in their testimonials, and Matt is willing to lie in the service of a good religious tale. So I think what we're seeing ultimately is how fervent Matt is in terms of his pursuit of Kevinism. And I think that plays a key role in what's going on in Australia for sure. All right. Well, before we move on, let's hit the road with Mary. Let's take a moment to thank our sponsors over at True Car, Antonio. True car. Let's do it. True oh, car. can you? If I hit a kangaroo with my car, Josh, is True Car the kind of place I could go <laughs> I to find know. a new used car? I would. I would try to avoid kangaroos at all costs, if possible. But yes, True Car. They are the people that can help you buy a used car. In fact, there are over seven hundred thousand pre-owned vehicles available from True Car certified dealers nationwide. I don't know if you knew that, Antonio. I didn't. Um, whether you're looking to buy new or used, you can get upfront pricing information that empowers, discounts off the list price for used cars, and a better buying experience through our True Car Certified Dealer Network. There are over 700,000 pre-owned vehicles available from True Car Certified Dealers nationwide. You'll see what other people paid for the car you want so you can know what a fair price is and feel confident. With True Car, you can connect with a local certified dealer of your choosing so you can enjoy a quick easy buying experience. By using True Car, you can easily find the new or used car that you want. So Antonio, when you are ready to buy a new or used car, which I know that you're flirting with right now. Yeah, $25,000 Melbourne, Australia, right? Indeed. That's where I get my car? That's right. That's correct. Okay. So visit True Car to enjoy a more confident car buying experience. All right. So let's move on into the deeper parts of this episode. Let's go start moving towards Australia here. Uh, let's stop down with Kevin because we haven't really talked through the final scene of the episode with Nora and Kevin, or not the final scene of the episode, the final scene with the Nora storyline of this episode. Uh, where do you want to begin with all of that? Well, Noah also asked, why does Kevin want a baby? I can't really make sense of that moment. Is it because Jill isn't around anymore? Maybe he thinks it will ground him and take the focus off of his slowly forming religion. Josh, what do you make of Kevin's request for a baby? Is that him giving Nora what he thinks that she wants? Is it because he is interested? What, what's the story there? And what does that represent in terms of the difference between them? Sometimes a baby is more than just a baby. Further episodes, hopefully, will give us great clarity on this issue. But for right now, as you know, as is always the case with The Leftovers, or often the case anyway, I think things are intentionally ambiguous, where I think that you could read this as, you know, it's like he got caught wanking off. You know, he got, he got, you know, she walked in on him with a bag over his head, and it was very awkward, and maybe he's dropping a bomb to kind of, you know, distract from that path. Uh, or it's entirely possible that he's seeing that she is clearly in pain herself, and maybe this is something that is going to help her. And he has talked to Jill last week. He talked about how he, you know, should he talk to her more? And he tried talking to her, and Nora really shut that down very quickly by the two of them just going straight to Bone Town. Um, so, there, so there's that. Is that in Australia? Yeah, that's in Australia. They're going to visit there next week. Uh, the okay. other piece of it possibly is that Kevin's really happy. 
Yeah. And then, like, the bag thing really is maybe just a way of him going back to the hotel or him trying to go back there. And maybe that's, like, a personal dissatisfaction. Or maybe it's him being like, I need to go back there. There's more good I can do if I go there. Or maybe he's just, you know, fairly happy here in Jarden and really happy with Nora. Every scene between them, it really is clear how much he cares about her. And it's not impossible that he just wants to have a kid with Nora Durst because he thinks that those babies are going to be soups cute and he'd be right. Uh, so I, I think it could be a bunch of things right now. For Nora's part, at least, seems to have zero interest in this. There is a great parallel between the two characters in bedroom surprises. When Nora is packing up to leave for St. Louis, seemingly without telling Kevin, Kevin shows up in the bedroom and surprises her. Why are you home? What are you doing? Oh, I have to go to work uh, in St. Louis and do all these things. And then when she comes back from St. Louis, she surprises him in the bedroom. What are you doing? Ah, just cranking it. No, like he's doing his weird ritual. There are these parallels between the characters. We had a great comment from Chris Eden, and Chris said that the episode went a long way towards clarifying some broad themes for him. I'm really feeling the idea of Kevin and Nora as perfect strangers, as we talked about. Outwardly, they seem to have a healthy, happy relationship, and I don't think that's been faked or manufactured in any way by either of them. After all, opposites attract. However, more than one thing can be true. They are also both certainly dealing with some shiz. Kevin's still recovering from the patty of it all, the experience he's been through, and now the book of Kevin, all of which are leading him down a path of faith. And Nora, on the opposite end of the spectrum, only finding small solaces in the instances of science and logic she can hang her hat on, debunking false departures and now potentially a scientific explanation of the departure. Forces are clearly pulling these two characters in opposite directions. I believe this will all come to a head in Australia as Kevin encounters his first set of followers and Nora, her physicist saviors. And frankly, because as we know, the crazy meter is always on tilt in Australia. Indeed. Uh, Australians, send your, send your comments and cards and letters about that, care of Chris Eden. But yeah, Josh, uh, these are perfect strangers. These two are very different. Uh, two people in the same relationship that are in some ways worlds apart, uh, not to uh, trigger you. But I'll Ultimately, this is this is what we're seeing with Kevin and Nora. I think that, but the interesting thing about it, right, is I do feel like even in her science searches, that Nora is susceptible to these explanations, which do require a little bit of a leap of faith, and that's because she feels a little bit like Nora cursed on the inside. Like maybe there is some deeper explanation that betrays or goes against science in her realm. That's the fascinating part of Nora Durst for me, as I've explained. That I think it, it's fascinating that she is the ultimate cynic and the ultimate uh, critic in terms of these faith stories, and yet she's carrying with her this belief that she particularly is cursed which is certainly not scientific well i think in in lindelof stories uh if you if you dig back once again into lost i i think that when you're when you're talking about like the man of science type of character the person who is a main character on the show who is very skeptical of all of the mysticism and all of these supernatural happenings that are going on uh until much later until like too much proof has piled onto the plate for you to ignore uh i think that that show in a lot of ways was about the slow breaking of the man of science into a man of faith for the main characters at the very least anyone who has that philosophy i think that it gets slowly chipped away at uh if not swiftly chipped away at for for many of those characters Characters. I think it's probably a similar deal here with the new Lindelof TV show, the one that's about to end, uh, that I think with, with Nora Durst, she is somebody who has been very, very hardened against uh, or yardened against uh, all of these possibilities.
possibilities that there could be something miraculous going on, that my boyfriend is really dying and coming back to life. Like, she laughs in the face of that stuff. But as you mentioned, inside, deep down, she does feel like she's Nora cursed. And that is somebody who the walls can come down on an issue like that. I, I really think that we will see at some point uh, Nora Durst, who is a believer, she might just not like what she sees and believes. Well, and I, I think that's a. Uh, I think we're seeing some of that right now. Uh, that she maybe doesn't like what she sees and believes, and in terms of assigning value, that she is cursed. That she maybe thinks that that is true, or that there's something to that. But it is fascinating as you're observing that people's points of view of their own role in this story can evolve, and I think we are seeing that with Kevin. Uh, Kevin, in this regard, and this is a comment from Pulsar seventy seven, says the logical conclusion of Kevin equals the Messiah storyline would be Kevin's departure which would parallel the ascension. So I think it will be Kevin who will go into the machine, perhaps even as a sacrifice to save mankind. That would certainly represent, Josh, an evolution of Kevin's view in the story. I'm wondering, do you think, and this is uh, spurred on, a pulse, if you will, by Pulsar 77's comment, we saw Kevin in International Assassin in front of a, uh, a wardrobe that said basically, first know thyself and adorn yourself accordingly. Not those exact words, but that's the sentiment. And one of the outfits in that closet is a spiritual outfit, is a, the outfit of a priest with the alpha and the omega symbol. If we go back to International Assassin in the hotel, is it possible we see Kevin at that point put on the religious garb because he feels like that's the role he occupies in the story at that point? The religious garby. The religious garby. Kevin, religious garby. Yeah, not impossible. I mean, we're going back to the hotel. It's just a matter of when and what are we going to see when we go there. Uh, that would be as fun as anything. I'd be into it. Can you, this is my question for you, can you wear a priest's outfit without a shirt on? Can you wear a priest's outfit without a shirt on? Uh, maybe just like a Roman collar with like a little thing around the neck. Uh, maybe you start to look like a hot cop or uh, some kind of stripper at that point. But uh, it seems like the show is inventing ways for uh, for Kevin to take his shirt off. Uh, we <laughs> we had a question uh, about that from John McDonald, who said, was Matthew McConaughey originally cast in this role? Uh, is, the, is this what's happening, Josh? Are we finding ways to get Kevin's shirt? Is this the Dennis Reynolds of this show? He's <laughs> popping that shirt off at all opportunities. I don't know if this is a new thing, though, right? Like, I feel like we've been objectifying just... Justin Thoreau as Kevin Garvey pretty much from the jump. We have been, for certain, for certain. Uh, I just, it, it's interesting as he evolves into this messianic figure, uh, whether or not there is some different element. He grew the beard out, so his uh, appearance has changed at least on that level. He certainly does seem to have the Jesus abs as well, so it will be interesting to see if he does go back to the hotel and puts that religious garb on, is that the sort of thing? Like Maybe he jumps into the machine and then he ends up in the hotel. We don't really know. There are a lot of theories about that. And we're going to continue to get into them as we talk about the Australia of it all. But, uh, yeah, we've seen this from Kevin Garvey. We've seen him evolving and breaking down his own pushbacks against, as we're saying, the, the science and faith elements of this. His father throughout the story telling him he's special, telling him there's something unique about him. And his father, we see in normal days, telling him there's nothing special about him. So this has always been the dichotomy of Kevin, uh, that he should have faith about things or or push back against the faith elements of it. Uh, when he gets to International Assassin Hotel 2, uh, Electric Boogaloo, 
when he goes to the karaoke scene, he says, this is stupid. Like, yeah. he's still not buying into it at that point. So this has always been a struggle of Kevin Garvey. And it does seem like in the season, he may be... He, I thought he was sheepishly telling Nora, like, well, there's only one copy of the book. I don't know if you should take it on the plane. Like, it does seem like maybe he's kind of uh, looking... Uh, there's something interesting going on here. Yeah, I think, you know, we, we're, we're speculating is Kevin on the road to believing his own hype. And I think that that's right. totally possible. Yep. Um, but I think that it's also equally possible that you know kevinism is still going to matter even if kevin garvey thinks it's bullshit like even if he thinks it's stupid like it's right still, the accidental messiah right yeah so i think it's it's totally still on the table in that regard scott duffman had written in and said do we believe kevin when he tells nora that he's ripping the bag off every time or do we still think he's up to something i i, I believe him you believe him yeah i believe him i i mean i, I think that i think the the nice parallel with nora hiring uh the uh the women of the night uh to shoot her in the chest uh, is there that especially since he says he just does it to feel uh that's something that she can completely understand and it's not all that dissimilar we we even made the joke analog choke versus the digital choke like this is something that we've seen other people in this series do uh which is push themselves to the brink of a thing uh, just to feel a certain way uh, a certain type of way so i do feel like I, I buy that i feel like you maybe feel that there may be room for something else there I think that it's not impossible that Kevin is, you know, just like quickly buying himself out of trouble and saying whatever he wants to say to just like get out of that situation. If he is going to the hotel, you know, I mean, he's taking the bag off every time because clearly he's still alive. Like the bag is coming off. But I think that he could be a little bit, you know, he could be fudging the numbers a little bit in terms of like how long he's going underneath the bag for. Uh, Sure. You know, I still think that there is some clarity that we need on the bag uh, and what he's doing there. Is he trying to visit the hotel? Is it just for kicks? What's going on there? Like that's something that needs to be addressed in a deeper way. Well, and there still is the, and it, and it could be nothing. It could be Lindelof thing. The random image of Kevin seeing somebody in a police uniform walking through international assassin hotel with a bag on their heads. And is he seeing himself in another timeline there? Uh, or is that just a, a weird thing that he saw when he was at the hotel? We don't really know. Uh, but there is still that hanging around out there, and there is a connection to a police officer. I, I think that's a Mapleton police uh, outfit, if you freeze frame that there. It's a Mapleton police outfit that person's wearing, but they do have a bag on their head. So there is a, a perhaps a parallel there. Uh, and we, we won't find out unless we go back to the hotel, I think, to what degree there are these parallel things that are going on. Uh, it is fascinating, though. I, I think that... Kevin is maybe trying to control that element of it or or to test the, uh, as we said, maybe chasing death uh, to test these elements of it, jumping into the water, that sort of thing. But I, I like your observation that he's also not necessarily in control of what happens with Kevinism. We see that in the Jarden storyline. Uh, we had Homer Bannon make a comment, wasn't Michael writing a blog when he closed the laptop? And Kevin facetiously asked if he was looking right. at porn. Maybe he's the culprit in spreading Kevinism around the world. Yeah, that's great because, I mean, we've, we've started picking up on the fact that, like, Matt could be, you know, lying by omission, right? Like, you know, right. his whole thing, like, I didn't lie. I didn't lie. It was the truth. You know, I didn't tell you the full thing, but I wasn't I wasn't, you know, lying to you directly. So, like, if we if we take that philosophy and we apply that to Matt of like, I didn't put the bumper stickers out there. Like, I didn't put the flyers out there. Like, okay, you didn't. But maybe Michael did or maybe some other disciple did. If you apply that same logic to this scene um, with with Michael and the laptop and he's closing it down and we know that there is one copy of the book. There's one book. 
isn't that isn't that I mean I would have to go back and see verbatim what he said but is there wiggle room Antonio is there room for interpretation that there's one physical book but there are you know countless digital copies or at least it's in the process of being translated and could that be how this Kevinism explosion is happening in Australia where the final events of this episode where four women drowned a, a police officer named Kevin because clearly they believed he was a very special Kevin who's going to be able to come back to life, who is not going to be drownable. Uh, is, it, is it likely even that they are hearing about Kevinism because Michael is translating the book and sending it to Kevin Sr. and therefore to these people and therefore the spread of Kevinism has already started? It's entirely possible. I do think that the screenshot, if you look of Michael's laptop, is him maybe reading about that initial Guilty Remnant riot in Mapleton. I'm not sure if it's the one from the departure day memorial from episode one or if it's the one from near the end of the season with everything that happens with the fire and Jill and when they bring the dolls back in and place them into the people's homes and cause that riot. Either way, it seems to be a story about that and maybe even Kevin's role in that. So it does seem like Michael is working on buffering the book of Kevin at the very least and that that may not be the only the only thing that's going on there we had a question from Adam who says in episode one Matt specifically said he believes Kevin can't die in miracle so why are these crazy old women drowning chiefs of police on the other side of the world I think Kevin Garvey senior and possibly Matt have tweaked the original version of the quote book of Kevin in episode two we saw Matt play along with the story that the man on the post departing for the purpose of building faith in Jarden and the growing the membership of his church it will be interesting to see if the embellishments continue and what effect this has on Matt's relationship relationship with Nora, Adam says. But it does seem like there are embellishments going on with the book of Kevin. Josh, we spent a lot of time in our recap podcast talking about how the timeline of what is going on in those Australia scenes means that it's basically at the same timeline as our Jarden story. And so it is evident. Unless Kevin Sr. is immortal. Because he looks exactly the same as he ever has, except a little bit shaggier. But, like, that's not a future Kevin Sr. No, and, yeah, yeah. No, he looks like Rickety Cricket a little (laughs) bit from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. He's got that homeless chic going on. But, yeah, what it ultimately is is we have the weather report saying as we quickly approach the seven-year anniversary of October the 15th, we determined that that's the same as Departure Day in Australia. That grounds us in a place, yeah. That grounds us in a place and a time. That police chief, Kevin, Captain Kevin, uh, Captain Kevin Kangaroo, leaves that police station and ultimately is then taken in by those women. And so that's all happening in that timeline uh, but yet these women already know about Kevinism they don't know great details of Kevinism Ecolola uh, Lale says basically I think it's interesting the four horsewomen of the apocalypse ask two questions is your name Kevin and are you the chief of police this shows that the only identifying information they have from the book of Kevin is this no nationality appearance age etc and technically wouldn't that description uh, about Kevin and chief of police also apply to Kevin Sr uh, is it that they don't know Kevin Sr yet which I don't think is the case considering they bring this dead body to his house to kill him uh, or Kevin senior has been telling the story without saying it's about his son for some reason where do you think Kevin senior's role has been in the spread of Kevinism Josh and is he taking any ownership of this how has he whipped these women into such a frenzy that they literally kill someone trying to find Kevin Garvey? well hopefully not literally hopefully he's not literally whipping these women uh, well, it could happen. That's a the, the uh, they call that. Uh, I forget what they call that. But yeah, that's uh, that's ultimately something that's flagellating themselves. Yeah. So who knows? Yeah, hopefully, hopefully the flogging is not a part of this. Uh, you know, I, I think 
Kevin Senior, you you pointed out, and it was something that I'd forgotten about. Where he he says in season one to his son, like you're not special or something to that effect, right? And and clearly the Kevin Senior that we've gotten to know for the majority of the leftovers is a guy who hears voices and has tried to keep them away from his son unsuccessfully, uh, and is able to communicate with his son in the International Assassin Hotel. Uh, I think that Kevin Senior is a guy who's very much going to buy into this hype, um, and if he's here in Australia. And if he's here, you know, hanging around with religiously minded or inclined people to begin with, um, he could spread that story and these could become his acolytes. Also, not impossible that if he's getting, you know, emails from from Matt or is doing, you know, video conferences uh, with Matt or whatever, that one of these people like Grace or, you know, another one of these women could overhear, could be listening, and then could be perverting the stories that they're hearing based on, you know, what they've misheard. Uh, We talked about the game of telephone that's being played right now, and that could be being played internally in Australia as well. It certainly seems like these ladies are are a little bit nuts. Uh, Maybe not all on the same page, because there is at least one of them who throughout is saying, maybe that's not him, maybe let's not do this. But it does seem like these ladies are are crazy. Uh, And, I mean, I don't know why they need to do this test to prove they've found their savior. And we've seen these ladies before, right? Like, we've seen these characters on The Leftovers before. I'm not sure about Uh that. That's something that I'm not on board with. Sure. Can you clarify Uh, what that's referencing? Yeah, and we talked about this in our recap episode. I don't know if we didn't do a good job because people must have missed it or if we got questions. We may have talked about this. it uh, off the air. I can't recall. I don't know if we talked about it off the air on, but I've, I was I was certain that we at least brushed You and it, I definitely these, discussed uh, it, maybe not on the podcast, but I don't remember. These women are not necessarily the same women. There are Kevin does encounter a group of four older white women. I know they all look alike. Uh, in I'm just joking, of course. Uh, in... A car in the Garvey's at their best episode in season one. And it is a very odd encounter because they're basically like, are you ready? And this is the day of the departure. He's sitting at the side of the road smoking a cigarette. When they drive away, uh, there is this uh, there is an explosion out of the sewer. We don't know if there's any connection to any of this, but it, it happens. This is something that happens in the episode. I think we both rewatched this. Uh, we both rewatched it before we podcasted on Sunday night. I don't think it's the same women. There's not an Australian accent. Uh, they are older, as I said, white women. Uh, but I, I just don't feel like we have any confirmation that these are the same women at all. What's your take on this? Same women, different, different women? women? I don't think it's the same women. I don't think it's the same women. I think it's one of those eerie leftovers like coincidences uh, I do think that the four horse women of the apocalypse if you will I think you could read either of these groups of those women uh, as particularly maybe representative of that or as evocative of that but I don't think it's meant to be the same four women I, I certainly don't think it is confirmed and I wouldn't stand by anyone uh, who is saying that it's definitely the same people but I understand the desire to think that it might be the same people and we've certainly had those desires as well uh, I'm just not sure that I, I certainly don't think the show is meaning for us to think oh my gosh we've seen these characters before it's the same four women yeah i don't think so either dave baker had written in and said are we in australia for the rest of the series what do you think no, I don't. I, I think we'll do these point of view episodes that uh, that shift away from Australia. I think that they're I, I mean, we don't 
show up with uh, Kevin and uh, Nora in Australia, and what we just never see Matt, John, and Michael again? Are they? Do we do we get the episode where they depart uh, for Australia, not uh, lifting, uh, and ultimately they're following them? I don't know, but I don't think we're just going to end up in Australia and be there for the rest of the series. I do think we're going to see more of Lori, for example, uh, and maybe Jill. I just don't think when we have we've seen the last of these characters, uh, so I don't think we're in Australia for the rest of the series. I, I think we're probably on the same page. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, I think that there's still a lot of business to be done. I mean, there might come a point where we're at Australia for the rest of the series, but we're not there yet, I don't think. There's still business to be had in America. What about this, Josh? Uh, Matt Murphy uh, asked something that that ties into a little bit of what we've talked about. We know that Matt has said Kevin can't die in Miracle. Matt Murphy says, so we're definitely getting a scene where our Kevin gets dunked by these weird Australian ladies. And are they going to have to bring his body back to Jarden, John Locke style? This season especially has a lot of lost vibes. Hope he can stick the landing. Is this why Matt had a nosebleed, Josh? Is Matt... Kevin's constant. What's going on here? <laughs> and Jeff Spence had also written in and said, is there any chance Kevin won't find himself on the wrong end of Chekhov's seesaw at some point later on this season? Uh, yeah, when you introduce a seesaw in Act 1 of a thing, you have to have it pay off by the It has to act. go off by the end of the, of the thing. Yes. Uh, uh, Everyone knows Again, that. I think that the, the limited episode order, uh, that stands in the way a little bit of saying that this is a slam dunk, like that he is definitely getting dunked into the water. Like we're definitely going to see that. It's a strong possibility. It's a very likely possibility. Um, There's just so much happening on the show that could these characters still have resonance without crossing paths with Kevin directly and doing to Kevin what they did to Kangaroo Kevin? I don't know. But you would think... You would think, and especially there was already a baptism for Kevin earlier this season that like a very different kind of baptism could be in his future. Right, we already saw him getting dunked in water. That's what I was going to say. We saw this happen on this season already. Yeah, just no seesaw was involved in that one. Um, It's incredibly possible that that he is going to be strapped to that thing at some point. I would stop short of saying it's definitely happening, but I I think it's a pretty high likelihood that we're going to see something like that. I do too, and I, I don't know if we'll. I'll stop short of saying they're going to bring his body back to Miracle, but I, I think Kevin in water has always has been an ongoing thing, not just this season, but we saw him try to kill himself jumping into the water. Like this is a thing that we have seen on the leftovers, and Matt has warned that a that a flood is coming. He said like this might be something that happens. There have been a lot of water. We've had questions. People have asked us to talk about water and its use in the leftovers and its place in this story. Uh, so certainly it, it rises again. In in this episode with this crazy uh, Salem witch baptism of this poor uh, Captain Kevin Rue, like what's happening there. So I don't ultimately know uh, what's going to happen with Kevin and water, but I feel like Kevin and water, that tale is still to be told. Still to be told for sure. Um, What do we want to get into here as we're starting to wrap up? Is there anything that we haven't covered from this episode that we really feel like we need to drill down into? Well, I want to hit just a couple of things generally, and then we'll hit a couple of our our listener theories, and then we'll wrap up here. First, I think it's interesting, funny, maybe a little bit, a little on the nose. When Matt is talking to Nora about the uh, about the pillar guy and about his role in that lie, uh, Matt says to Nora, "Give a man a little grace." And I think knowing that Grace is the lady who shows up later in the episode and gives a little grace to that man, uh, that's just an interesting connection. I'm sure not necessarily on purpose, uh, but the word choice there, uh, at least least the name of the character of Grace, uh, is an interesting one. And it it jumped out to me on a rewatch. I also want to talk just a a moment, just a very brief moment. We hit on this. uh, We hit on this a little bit in the recap episode. I'm just curious if anyone can go back and rewatch the scene between 
Nora and George Brevity. I don't want to get too far afield on this, but it just still strikes me as weird. Rewatching it, he says she's going after the conversation on the phone as if to verify that, that she's going to do a thing that no one knew she was ever going to do before that phone call ever existed. He's having a one-sided conversation with Nora and says she's going by means of filling in his deskmate in on a, a story that the guy doesn't even know the details of. All that guy hears George Brevity say to Nora is, uh, can it wait and then save your receipts? Not where she's going or not any details about why. So when he hangs up the phone and says she's going... It still seems very odd to me. It's almost like they knew this thing was going on or they're they're part of a bigger story that she doesn't know about. I'm sure I'm reading too much into that, but I'm I'm curious as anybody is on my team uh, if they rewatch that scene. I don't know why else they show him say she's going in that scene. I just doesn't it did not play well to me the first time and even the second time through. It played weirder to me the second time. Yeah, I mean it could just be like an oddly written moment. Like it could right, it, right. could could easily be 100%. It could just be like a thing or like that the logic of that wasn't thought all the way through in the writing. Totally possible. Um right. could also be that there is something happening here. Uh, and what it is ain't exactly clear. Uh, I don't think they tipped. I don't think that it's not like a, there was a big music sting, and it's not like they pulled in close on his face as he said it. It did seem like a throwaway. It could be something that in the future something's going to happen with Nora that will be you know a pretty revealing bombshell that we'll be able to go back and like connect some of that stuff, and maybe we could connect it to this this brevity moment. Right. And this brevity moment and Nora is really the genesis of not the brevity moment itself, but Nora and what her goals are, are ultimately the genesis of a lot of the uh, the, the, the theories we will wrap this podcast by discussing uh, from from listeners. Uh, I don't know where these theories were generated, but you can always send us your theories and we're happy to discuss them here. Bobby from Jersey, a great friend of the show, Bobby from Jersey, who uh, I believe Josh was once mistaken for me on a voicemail show. I that's right. Bobby from Jersey said, I saw an interesting theory out there in regards to the Nora epilogue. Some have speculated maybe it's not far in the future. The theory is that Nora is not old, but scarred physically and mentally from the effects of, say, a magic radiation box. What are your thoughts? Also, did you what did you think of Nora's reaction to Kevin wanting a baby? We, we've got on board with that a little bit. Uh, is Nora already on board with the magic radiation box? Josh, what do we think? Is future Nora, is Sarah Durst a Nora who has been in the box? What's in the box? It's me! I'm the one. Uh, yeah, and maybe she's just like very, very messed up from having stepped in. And like Nora is so cursed that she didn't even get like transported away. And she just got blasted with radiation. And now she's feeling the effects of that. I guess not impossible. But God, that's morbid. <laughs> right. Know? It really is. For a very morbid show. Like that. Yes. Is, that is a real deep darkness. So I hope not. God, oh, <laughs> it's not off the table, but that would be that would be pretty gnarly. Well, listen, uh, we're going to get further off the table here. So let's talk. Let's talk. Uh, let's talk Turkey. Uh, Owen Taylor, I'm planting a flag here. Nora will enter the radiation machine in Australia and exit said machine in the same spot just 20 years in the future. She will have lost three years of her life and will have to start over entirely as Sarah. In this future timeline, the Book of Kevin and Kevinism will have gained a significant following in the southern U.S. and Australia through the work of Matt and Kevin Sr. Sarah slash Nora will be recognized as the woman in the book, leading her to hole up in a remote location. I strongly believe that in the future timeline, Nora may be the lone survivor of our noteworthy characters looking to avoid the attention and witch hunt. Who do you guys think is still alive in the future timeline? First... 
First, I think we talked about this possibility of the future timeline and her trying to hide from her role of Kevinism. I know we talked about that last week, and I'm still on board with that being a very strong possibility. Sure, me too. That that there is some element of that with this Norder Sarah story, and that the messages that are being sent to her are sent in her general direction as offerings, and that as offerings from Kevinites, and that she's part of this thing, and she wants no part of it. She gives the birds to an actual spiritualist who maybe unfortunately is connected to Kevin. We've talked a ton about all of this, but Josh, what do you think? What do you make of the fact that this could be after she's stepped in the box? Does she emerge from the timeline of the box in a different place uh, and a different time? And that it's within the context of our story, not an alternate dimension or anything, but that her in this timeline is because she steps into the box and emerges later. I guess it's not, you know, the craziest thing that could possibly be, be out there, but I feel like to like bring time travel into this on top of everything else that's in play, would be a lot for me. What if they don't answer that? What if she does step into the box, and all we know is that she later shows up in a different place in Australia? The thing is, is like I don't, I don't know that you need to like detach Nora Durst from reality further in order to detach her from reality. Like she's already really good and detached, and I don't know that like removing her from three years of real time and then dropping her back, and what does that give you that we don't already have? I'm not sure that it buys you anything, especially I feel like it detracts from what you would imagine to be the pain and suffering and, uh, you know, the just the, the dread of being in your day to day existence for however long Nora is going to be trapped as Sarah or on the road to becoming this person and on the road to becoming a person who bikes around the, the back roads of Australia selling birds. Uh, I, I feel like <laughs> for leather. Yeah, I feel I feel like I don't know. I want that character to live in the world. I want that character to live in the day to day and to think about all of the things that she regrets and to you know have that be the existence that she is chewing on every single second of every waking moment. So that when we get to whatever these final scenes of the leftovers are going to be, and there's some sort of great redemption or reconciliation for Nora Durst, I can't imagine that they would leave Nora on a downswing because this show loves this character as much as its audience does. Uh, I, I think to to really keep her in the darkness and keep her in the active pain, I think is more valuable than to throw her in a box and have her pop out three years later. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I do agree. And I, I also think that the show isn't going to lean that heavily into that that wacky of a thing. I think the show has always left room for 98% explainable, 2% mystery. And when there is crazy mystery like that, it becomes the defining characteristic of a person's yeah. life. And so I think the living off the grid, Nora, in a world that does seem to have a grid because the church is connected, I think that means that Nora is trying to hide and trying to keep a low profile, changing her name, same thing. And I think the look on her face when the when the uh, religious figure caller and nun mentions Kevin, uh, I think that that triggers her a little bit because this is a Nora Durst who remembers. Uh, this is not a Nora Durst who forgets. And this is a thing that's happening. So I think the, the more interesting story, as you're observing, is one we've talked a ton about in this feedback episode, which is that it certainly seems like there is some evolving gap between Nora and Kevin, as evidenced by the baby question, certainly, and her response to it, but certainly as evidenced by maybe his desire to embrace 
the, the spiritual thing about himself and her maybe running from or wanting to try to find a way to deny every element of what might be the Nora Cursed thing, the anti-version of that right. about herself. And whether that gap, if Kevin continues to embrace Kevinism, drives a wedge between them that is unattainable and that causes her to ultimately be pushed completely away from Kevin, I feel like that does seem to be the direction the story's headed in, as we've talked about already. Uh, I think that there are some great questions and observations from a couple of our uh, our, our friends of this show about this. Geek Furious uh, has a great one here. said, having already seen there is a future where Nora is going by another name and saying she doesn't know Kevin, are we going to see Kevin fake his death in order to take his life back from a world that considers him the second coming of Christ? And is that why Nora assumes a new name in Australia? Because she's living with that and perhaps taking care of a Kevin who cannot be seen or the masses would think he's risen from the dead. Maybe he can never leave Australia because he's stuck. What about that, Josh? What about a world where there is a Kevin in this future timeline and he and Nora are on the same page, but they're they're basically outcasts. They're the Rose and Bernard of the story, not wanting to live in the mystery and not wanting to deal with all the craziness surrounding the situation that they're thrust in and instead wanting to live off the grid together. Is that a happy ending yeah. that we could see for Nora? I was just about to say, like, isn't that the happiest possible ending to The Leftovers that you've just sketched out, given what we know right now, given that we know that we're driving towards a Sarah Durst in the future? Could yes. it be that the other shoe that drops is Sarah Durst isn't depressed and Sarah Durst does not deny knowing Kevin because she is actually living with Kevin still and they are fine. Uh, but it just so happens to be that Kevin is also a hermit who is going under a different name. I believe he also has an alias established on the show, Kevin Harvey. Uh, yes. So perhaps he's just going as Harvey these days. Maybe he's going by Steve Harvey. Steve Harvey. <laughs> that could be it. <laughs> yeah, and that's easy because that once you go by Steve Harvey, uh, mistaken names follow you around. Indeed. So it's perfect. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So that that could be a possibility. Uh, I love that. That would be great. It, you know, that would be the happiest possible ending that like Kevinism has spread and a lot of people have found comfort in that. And, you know, people find meaning in life again. But Kevin just gets off the grid so that he can't be involved with it. And, and Nora is with him as well. And they're very happy. And maybe Tommy and Jill and John and Lori are there. Probably not Matt because he would just be screaming from a rooftop. Can't you also foresee a scenario where Nora comes clean to Kevin about the microwave machine and Kevin says, listen, I can't die. Let me go in there. Totally. Like, let me go in there and let me figure this out. And Kevin probably does die and that Nora has to live with that for the rest of her life and in the future she doesn't want any part of it that's Kevin's ascension that he crossed over that's his myth that he ascended or crossed over and he did this via the microwave and as it becomes part of the uh, the myth of Kevinism but yet he really just killed himself and Nora has to live with that and wants no part of Kevinism as a result because it caused a lot of drama in her life I mean I can see that as just as likely of an outcome as the scenario where they're living together in happiness. So uh, I, I just I want to finish this by saying the last part of this is another kind of sad shoe. Josh, we'll end on this one from Humby. Humby says, is it possible that Nora goes with the microwave people and it actually works, but that after seven years, her husband and kids already remade their lives and don't want anything to do with her. That could explain why she's alone there and Kevin means nothing because he's actually not in that world. Is that a possible outcome for this, Josh, that Nora is actually in some kind of different world? Maybe that's why it seems sparsely populated because only 2% of the world is there. 
But it's a world where her family moved on and didn't want anything to do with her. Like the Lily scenario, she's not part of their lives anymore, and they've moved on and done their other thing, and she has to live by herself in this scenario, and that's why Kevin's not part of this. Well, we know that the show is never going to answer the re like what happened like how did the departure occur like what was the science behind it what was the mysticism behind it like that's pretty clear from from Lindelof that that's not going to be something that the show addresses would it be fudging those rules would it be a cheat to see where everybody went and to go to that world you know it still wouldn't be explained how the departure occurred but now you know where did they go I don't know I feel like probably I feel like that's probably a cheat like, I don't think that we can see where everyone departed to. I think that you could see a character go through the microwave, and then you're left to wonder, is that person where the departed went, or is that person just stardust now? Stardust. Uh, I, I, <laughs> I'm more inclined to, to take that view than we will actually see, like, Nora's family again in whatever happy world they're living in, because that feels like an answer. Like, that feels like now we know where the departed went, and that, that feels too mystery-answering for this show to me. I, I just don't see that happening. I don't either. The show does such an artful job of straddling the line between mysticism and reality and like skewing towards mysticism these days. And, and the more and more the show has gone uh, on in that direction. Uh, but this I think it would be too far for me to, to really go and visit the departed world. Yeah, I do too, and uh, and I think we're on a pretty breakneck pace here. Um, we're and I'm I'm frustrated with the pacing. If I if I I don't want to close this on a low note, but the whole Kevin has to be in miracle. There are these horrible things about to happen. Five to ten k people streaming in, everybody on overtime, no adults in the room except him, and now he's just going to depart to Australia and perhaps never come back. I feel like that the, there there's a very distinct timeline on this Australian machine, and I don't think it's going to happen in episode seven of this season. I think if we get there. We're going to get there in two to three episodes. And I think if that's the case, uh, I don't think that it's going to be the climactic moment of the season where Kevin steps into the machine and we don't know what happens to him after that. I can see that being the end of Kevin. I really think that the scenario where he buys into Kevinism, wants to try it himself, thinks he can't die. We never find out the true answer to it. He doesn't make it out of the hotel the third time, whatever the case may be, uh, not to go into the lost territory. I think we could see that be the story. I just don't know timeline-wise how that fits. Uh, And it seems more likely that they're going to address this microwave thing without anybody stepping into it. But at least that's probably my hopeful version. I don't want any of these people stepping into this freaking microwave it's a suicide call josh that's really all it is these are people who are willing to die and not concerned about the fact that they might not come back to this realm this version of the world and might be incinerating themselves those videos are harrowing i don't want any part of that in our story to nora or kevin i sure should hope we don't go there well i don't know what if it's what if it's real uh, yeah, well, let the mystery be. The I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I really don't know. And Josh, I don't know where our credits are going to be the rest of the season. Certainly, we're not going to have Perfect Strangers the rest of the time, right? As soon as you said that, I was like, oh, we're totally going to have the Perfect Strangers theme for the rest of the series. Uh, I, I don't know. I'm looking forward to finding out. I mean, it's been yeah. it's been different for the, you know, there was no credits in the first episode. There was this, you know, rebooted version of the credits in the second episode. Is that just going to be the thing for the rest of the season? Or was it just for... Yeah, Edwin Johnson said an honest question. Will we get a Wu-Tang cover of Let the Mystery Be? Is that <laughs> the best so. way to finish this season? That would be great. Credits-wise. Be... All right. That would be really well, good. Well, we will end on that note. That's a... 
pretty happy non-sour yeah, night. Absolutely. Then. All right. So we're going to wrap up there. We will be back on Sunday night talking about the third episode of The Leftovers' final season, which certainly is looking to me um, as if it is going to be Kevin Senior-centric. Uh, if not for the entirety of it, then certainly for a pretty significant portion of it, you would think. Yeah, we could potentially cover four plus years of time in this story, and that's without even jumping into the Sarah Durst timeline. Because remember, Kevin Sr. went to Australia during the events of season two. Uh, we may see his alternate perspective of the God's Tongue conversation in International Assassin. We may see what's up with Kevin and these crazy ladies. Uh, we're going to see. I'm very interested to get this story because we could potentially cover a lot of time, and this could give us a great idea of where we might be going the rest of this season in terms of this Australia. Story. It's called Crazy White Fella Thinking. It's the name of episode three of... The- yes, which is what we've seen from Kevin Sr. the whole series. Yes, and it's also what you guys have been experiencing listening to these podcasts with Antonio and I uh, all of these years. Yes, yes. Uh, yeah, as a matter of fact, if it wasn't the name of the episode, it would be a great hashtag to describe just about everything we've absolutely. done Absolutely. All right, speaking of hashtags, do you have anything uh, anything to suggest? Imperfect Friend was an early front runner. I like Imperfect Friend. Let's All right, go let's with go that. with hashtag Imperfect Friend. So tweet that to Antonio and I. He's at AC Mazzaro. I am at Round Howard. Subscribe if you have not already. Postshowrecaps.com slash leftovers iTunes or postshowrecaps.com slash feed slash leftovers. We will be back on Sunday night with another podcast. Anything else, Antonio? No, thanks again to everyone who sent in feedback. Great feedback, as always, this week. We certainly appreciate it. We look forward to getting into Episode 3 and the feedback to follow next week here at Post Show Week. All right, take care, everybody. Bye. Bye. Sometimes the world looks perfect Nothing can be Sometimes you just Stop me now